0: Go to CloudOptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's CloudOptimizer.com.
2: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. This season on Working, we're talking to individuals whose jobs touch on aspects of LGBTQ life. To that end, I couldn't be more excited about this week's guest, uh, Christina Cattarucci, who is a writer uh, covering gender and sexuality for Slate. Um, Christina is so smart about the uh, politics of gender, the politics of sexuality. She draws on her own experience, but also on extensive reporting and reading in her work. Uh, and in this episode, she talks about how she made her way to Slate, how she built this, this career in journalism, which I think is super interesting, uh, and, and and talks about The ways that her uh, work is uh, structured these days, um, and the ways that uh, her interests in, her background in, or her her personal connection to uh, questions of uh, sexuality uh, inform what she does every day. Then in a Slate Plus Extra, uh, Christina shares some uh, thoughts about a queer artist who are particularly excited these days. Um, If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from Working, plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. What is your name and what do you do?
0: My name is Christina Cotarucci. I'm a staff writer at Slate Magazine, um, and my beat is women and gender.
1: So what is your backstory? How did you make your way to Slate covering issues of women and gender?
0: Um, I took a little bit of, uh, I guess, like a crooked road to journalism. Um, I didn't really find out that that was something I wanted to do until pretty late in college. I had been writing um, opinion pieces for the monthly news magazine at uh, Georgetown where I went to school. And there wasn't a journalism program, but I had taken a class or two. Um, and by the time I graduated, I thought, okay, this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. But I had no experience besides you know, being on my college paper. Um, and so I applied to about a zillion jobs, didn't get any of them, um, worked at the university for a couple years, and then... Left a very well-paying, steady job for an internship at NPR, which my parents thought was absolutely crazy, but (laughs) I think is probably pretty normal for um, a lot of people in journalism to do something absolutely crazy. Um, Did did they eventually
1: come around? Your parents?
0: Yeah, they did. Especially they, you know, loved listening to NPR. And so I think once I started telling them like, oh, yeah, I saw, you know, Bob Boylan today or like, (laughs) look, my name's on the NPR website, they became like slightly starstruck and thought it was a cool thing to do. And I think now that my career has fallen a little bit more into place, uh, they understand that things don't always in other industries, uh, you know, and in this day and age, things don't always work the way they did when they were looking for jobs, uh, where it's just like knock on a bunch of doors and give out your resume and, (laughs) you know, call somebody 12 times. Um, but yeah, I, uh, looking backwards, it all seems to make a lot of sense. Like my, my career and my interests seem to make a lot of sense at the time. it felt like I was just sort of flailing and trying everything, but, um, Mm. I just as like a fun side hustle, um, I was writing a queer blog, um, like a local D.C.-oriented queer blog where we hmm. would like review clubs and interview local luminaries and write silly like uh, humor pieces um, and throw parties also. So and I, then, I guess that
1: was, I imagine, what was that blog called again?
0: It was called Where the Girls Go. And I... Actually, I think the first piece I ever published in a non-school-based publication was for a now defunct blog called The New Gay, which was another DC-based queer blog, um, and I, it was just sort of a personal essay, and then one of my now best friends, uh, a trans guy named Alexander, who ran Where the Girls Go, just found me on Twitter and was like, hey, I, I read this thing that you wrote on The New Gay about mm-hmm. um being at Pride and dating a trans guy and feeling, like, sort of invisible and, like, you looked like a straight person at Pride. And I think you should write for this blog that I run called Where the Girls Go. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was sort of new to the queer scene in D.C., and so that sort of opened the door for not only, like, my crew of best friends now, but um, just, like, writing about queer stuff.
1: So I I don't want to, I mean, I I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves here, and and I want to hear more about your backstory. But one thing that's striking, thinking about the way you're describing this work, this early work of yours, um, is that it it, at some level seems to fuse real reporting, but also kind of personal experience. Um, It's not, I don't think what you were doing was strictly just, you know, kind of the personal essay as we understand it now. Um, But then as in many of your pieces now, it seems like you were already drawing on your own world that you lived in uh, and your own way of living in it to to kind of create some of this, this work. Is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think this is probably true for um, a lot of beginning journalists and especially a lot of women journalists um, to get sort of a foot in the door when we feel like we don't necessarily have many traditional professional skills to offer. It seems natural to write about the things that we know intimately Mm -hmm. and that's always appealed to me in general even now as I've you know felt more confident in my abilities and feel a little bit more established in the field um, I find it really rewarding to you know draw on the things that affect me in my personal life which and the things that I talk with my friends a lot about and the you know my interests outside of work so for me, like feminism and gender sexuality, has always been something I've thought a lot about, talked a lot about with my friends. Um, which is why, just to bring it back to Slate, um, I loved the work of Amanda Hess, who wrote for the Double X blog at Slate um, for several years, I think. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and is now at the New York Times, and,
0: right? And doing fantastic work there. Um, so when she left her job, or when she left the the Women and Gender beat at Slate. Um, and I was working at the Washington City paper, our local Alt weekly, um, I thought, well, I wonder who's going to take that job. <laughs> you know, I've always loved reading about that stuff. I've never written about it. I had always been an arts reporter and editor. Um, and I thought, you know, I have written a little bit about this in the past, like, you know, for stuff outside my job. I had just published a, an opinion piece in the Washington Post about um, the sort of like cap commercialization of um, pride and sort of the way that businesses are trying to capitalize on the legalization of gay marriage. And I was like, that seems like something that it could have been a slate piece and maybe something that could have run on double X. Like, I'm just going to apply for this job. Um, <laughs> and it's been wonderful.
1: So we've jumped ahead of ourselves just a little because it it sounds like you had some work that you did between that NPR thing and Slate, it's not like you just suddenly made that leap. That's you, true.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess I made another, um, like, decision that might, from the outside, have seemed inadvisable. Um, at the end of my internship at NPR, um, you know, I had, like put in a lot of work talking to people in the building and trying to get a job somewhere after my internship was over. And uh, the only job I was offered was um, sort of an administrative job um, that I thought, you know, it would have been, again, like a really good study job. I would have been in the building. And actually the person who ended up taking that job is now doing um, amazing, you know, more substantive reporting work at NPR. But at the time I, was, I felt like, I want to see if I can make it freelancing until I can get a job that um, really draws on what I think are the skills that I have learned in that job, mm-hmm. which were more in the vein of, you know, writing and reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I freelanced for a couple months. Um, I published a few pieces um, or actually, I guess I wrote pretty regularly for the Washington Post Express, which is a free um, daily, like, commuter paper in D.C., um, owned by the Washington Post, but pretty separate from it, and I, I wrote mostly arts features for them, um, and then, and I was doing a lot of jobs on the side. I had, like, two shifts a week at a local bakery. I worked a brunch shift at, um, a, a local restaurant. I was writing press releases for the trade association for Alt weeklies. um, And you know, making engagement videos for my friends. Like I was basically doing anything to make money at the time, Mm -hmm. while also still trying to publish work. Um, And it was freaky. (laughs) It was also in the middle of winter. It was I think January through March was when I was doing this, and it was like really dark outside. I was alone all day, wondering how I was going to pay my bills, Um, but and feeling like, wow, why did I make that decision to leave? NPR, which was sort of like the dream place to work for me at the time. Um, And, you know, is this going to be my life forever, like working two bakery shifts and one brunch shift and writing press releases and making videos and then also writing things and also applying for full time jobs? I would if somebody wants to do that, I would recommend doing it in the summer when it's a little (laughs) friendlier outside. Um, And my partner would come home from work and, you know, she would have had like a really stressful day and I would have been like, let's play, you know, like, let's hang out. I've been so lonely all day. Uh, And so I was like, okay, I think maybe the freelance life is not for me. Like I, first of all, I was not like, established at all in the field like I did not have many contacts you know editors that I could pitch things to so I was just taking a lot of shots in the dark that yielded no leads for me Um, and also I I missed being on a team and working with people Um, and so then the arts editor job at the Washington City paper opened up and this is where I sort of felt like all the random things that I had been doing in my past um, came together to help me get a job that I felt slightly unqualified for. It was, Uh you know, my first big girl journalism job. And um, it was an arts editor role, which, you know, it was kind of a, it felt like a lot of responsibility to me at the time. And this is a Um, alt
1: weekly, right? With a, with a strong web presence uh, as well. So you were going to be covering both Web stuff and also the the weekly print material. Yeah,
0: so we had the arts section um, in the weekly paper, and then yeah, we were publishing stuff online every day. Um, and there was I was the editor for all the arts stuff, and the only full time arts staffer. So it was music and theater, uh, visual arts, um, and anything you know, books. Uh, it was a lot of fun, and it was a very small staff um and really a family like environment it almost felt like a really high end college paper like we all just had so much fun and really like entertained each others uh weirdest and deeply bizarre ideas uh there was not a lot of saying no which was very empowering for somebody who was you know starting out in my first big job as a journalist um and this was yeah, a job that, like... that
1: was previously held also by uh, another uh, Slate staffer, right? Uh, John Fisher. Yeah.
0: John Fisher, who John F... then... The... Yeah. He's John the... is the uh,
1: business, business and technology editor at Slate now, one of them.
0: Right. And he was um, the managing editor at the time. Oh, okay. And I remember when he interviewed me, um, it, it was sort of a good cop, bad cop situation where the editor-in-chief was the good cop and John Fisher was the bad cop. And so he would be like... What's a DC band that you think hasn't been getting enough attention in the national media? And I forget who I said, but he was like, oh wow, interesting. Like that's actually a pretty mainstream band. And I was <laughs> like, oh my God. Um if,
1: if for those listeners who have not met John Fisher, this is almost unthinkable because he's one of the <laughs> nicest people on earth. But he's a tough so interviewer. Apparently. supportive.
0: Yeah, and I think because he had held that job and also grew up in the D.C. area um, and was very well versed in the, you know, story, DIY and punk scenes, he had a, a really uh, high expectations for sure. somebody who was going to hold that role. So I learned a lot really quickly. Um But yeah, I think that was a good I sort of like fudged my way into that job because I had been doing this queer blog and so I had experience um, making connections in local businesses and i had a i had lived in dc for a while and had a sense of the lay of the land i was an arts enthusiast so um i had exhibited at a local gallery and sung at a local bar and it it felt like uh, home to me mm-hmm. um the beat that i was about to oversee mm-hmm.
1: um was were the kind of issues of gender and sexuality that you had also been working on at that point already uh part of what you were doing when you were working for the Washington City paper?
0: Uh, Not even a little bit. Mm. Um, Eventually, I think after I had been working there for a while, and had a better handle on what I was doing and didn't feel like I was skidding into the finish line every week for our uh, print deadline. I, I was able to think a little bit more about okay, what's What's some sort of cultural criticism that I can bring to this that's mm-hmm. not strictly arts-focused that also brings in broader conversations about gender and sexuality? So I did something. This was inspired by a project I think that began um, in the UK, where I looked at all of the lineups for all the local music festivals uh, mm-hmm. one season, and saw and did sort of like a an infographic about you know all the bands that didn't have any women in them hmm. um which it it doesn't seem like it would be that dramatic but it was insanely dramatic like especially for the local metal festival I think something like 90% of the bands had not a single woman in them hmm. and so when you see all that stuff laid out uh yeah it made a big visual impact um and then we had a yearly gay issue which I don't think that there was a queer person. Um, on staff before I got there. At least not in the, you know, immediately previous iteration of the city paper staff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I took control of that. And that was really fun. It was um every year around Pride Week. Um and we did this was a, a John Fisher Christina Cotterucci collaboration. We did <laughs> the Encyclopedia of Gay DC one year. And so we had um, you know, just like local and important people and historical moments and did um, like an alphabetized index of uh, Q&As and funny little quips. And it was so much fun. Um, Hmm. And I did write one cover story that was about, um, I was like groped on the street Hmm. and Hmm. uh, reported it to the police, which uh, Hmm. now with, several years, uh, hindsight, I feel very complicated about. Um, but the, I had remembered reading that the DC police was, uh, there was a report that came out from Human Rights Watch about how, um, the MPD was further traumatizing sexual assault victims and, uh, you know, losing their case files and never following up with them. And it was, I wasn't expecting much when I reported this to the police, uh, and I was very pleasantly surprised with how they reacted. Like, they followed up with me a couple months later, asked if I needed any assistance, Mm -hmm. um, they took me very seriously, they were very sensitive to, like, I was with my female partner at the time, and they were, I don't know why I was so surprised, but, um, Yeah, I wrote a cover story about that and talked to the cops about, like, the work that they've done in the past couple years to retrain all their officers and uh, make a special uh, victims advocacy unit. So I guess that was uh, something that was completely off my beat. Um, Mm. And because the city paper was very small and very independent, we were able to pursue things like that that, you know, weren't immediately relevant to whatever arts section was coming out in the next week's paper.
1: Yeah, so you were doing this editing and thinking about section and coverage and what was going on in the city, but you were also doing some reporting at that point uh,
0: as yeah. well. Yeah, and especially, um, it was mostly arts-related. Most of my big stories were, uh, my big reported stories that I did were uh, related to the arts scene in D.C. and But the stuff that interested me was always the stuff that brought in, um, you know, political ideas and issues of gentrification and race and class. Um, And, you know, I, one of my favorite pieces that I did was about uh, a public art piece that the DC Commission for Arts and Humanities put in um, a neighborhood that is, you know, historically poor and sort of dealing with the first coming waves of gentrification. They put a piece there by a black artist from New York City, which was uh, commentary on gentrification and the the Great Migration. But it was essentially a big pile of trash Hmm. that the city put in a vacant storefront that the city had owned and had sat on this vacant storefront for years. And the community had been asking, like, please do something with this empty building. Um, And then the first thing they do with it is put a pile of trash in it. So the community was like, um, hi, like we're, you know, trying to clean up this neighborhood and you just put a pile of trash in it. Hmm. Um, That was a really interesting story to report. And uh, yeah, something I still think back on occasionally when I write about the arts in, uh, in the context of my current job.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it was then as now in your work, I think we're seeing an attention to what's happening in the culture what's happening locally but also to the way that issues of uh justice more generally uh race class gender sexuality are all kind of intersecting yeah
0: yeah one thing i like about slate a lot uh as at City Paper, it feels like I have a lot of freedom to direct my own beat, and especially the beat of gender um, in particular. It's more of a lens than a beat, so Mm. there are certain topic areas that are just mine, Um, you know, reproductive rights and sexual harassment and assault, which has really been dominating the news lately. That's uh, Those are the, you know, it's the bread and butter of my beat, but uh, if I can just make the case that... Something I want to write about belongs in this section. The editors have been great about encouraging me to go for it.
1: Yeah. So I, mean, I guess we can come back around now, uh, maybe to getting that job at Slate. The position had opened up. Uh, it had been Amanda Hess's job, as you said, uh, more or less, and uh, they had room for a a new journalist under the Double X rubric. Um, and you you applied. You got it.
0: Yeah. I. So I was at an editing job at the City Paper, um, and as you said, I was mostly editing. I did some reporting and writing, but definitely not to the extent that I do now. So when I saw the job had opened up, I was not sure that I would be able to write um, as prolifically as the job demanded. Because at the time, it was was... demanding
1: three blog posts a day, I think, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, two to three. Yeah. and I had never done that before, and especially not, you know, to the uh, at the level of quality that, that Slate published at. So at City Paper, you know, I could do two or three posts a day, but they would be one paragraph each, and that's not really something that um, Slate does or that Double X does. So I decided not to apply for it. Um, but then I went to this amazing two-week um, arts critics camp at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center in uh, Connecticut. It's an incredible program. It was fully funded at the time for, I think it was about 12 or 14 um, arts reporters from around the country to come uh, to this theater center that helps um, emerging playwrights develop their work. So we would uh, watch one or two performances a day, Uh, write reviews of them, and then critique each other's work. Mm. And so we were forced to produce a lot of work. You know, sometimes really late at night, like we would watch a play that would end at 10 and then have to have something for 9 a.m. the next morning. Um, It was grueling, incredibly fun, and we got to learn from some uh, pretty accomplished arts writers. Mm. And I loved it. And I realized that I wanted to write all the time that and that I was able to do it more importantly that mm-hmm. you know I wouldn't run out of words to use or you know get tired of it um so when I got back from that camp I looked to see if the job was still open at slate um and the the deadline had passed there was a deadline on the job but it was still posted so, and this is where Having Connections comes in. I contacted John Fisher, my former colleague, who was at Slate, and I was like, hey, do you know anything about this job? And more importantly, do you know if they're still taking applications? Um, and he said, yeah, they, I don't think they've found anyone yet. So I sent in my late application, um, and had a bunch of interviews, mostly on the phone. I think I met with um, our editor-in-chief, Julia Turner, in person when she was down in D.C. Uh, And the more people I talked to, the more I became certain that Slate was not only fun to read, but uh, (laughs) a really rewarding place to work. There were people I talked to who had been there, you know, Julia is one of them, who had been there for more than a decade. Um, I thought that was a really good sign. Everyone seemed to be in, you know, good cheer and, and had their heads on straight. And uh, it didn't seem like a sharp elbowed place to work, which was something I was concerned about, because I thought everyone at Slate was so smart and so accomplished. I didn't want to work at a place where we were all sort of trying to one up each other. And it didn't Mm. seem that way from the interviews. Um, That was important to me. And then I I got the job. So here I am. uh, Here you are.
1: And you've been in this job for I think
0: was a little over two years. A little over
1: two years, yeah.
0: So, what are your actual
1: days like now? When do you get started in the morning?
0: (laughs) Um, When I first started the job, I did. I would get on my computer around seven thirty. Oh God! Like a couple minutes after I woke up, um, and do a survey of the news. So, Mm -hmm. I would look at my RSS feed and my email and Twitter and pick um maybe 12 bits of news that were happening um i would call them i think we called it like morning links and i would send them out on slack um and some of them i would say you know i think this this and this are interesting other writers could say the same um and write about stuff and sometimes my editor would say like yes do that or no write about these other things um and so I was mostly following the news mm-hmm. um, more recently in the past um, year, maybe, or nine months. It's my uh, post quota has been relaxed a little bit. So instead of writing two or three posts a day, I'm writing um, one post a day or less in the past couple months. Um, I've been writing almost exclusively on sexual harassment and assault and I have a couple bigger pieces that I'm working on in that uh on that topic so I'll still get started around the same time um I'll usually get to work around uh 9 or 9 30 um but I am working on longer projects instead of you know having little mini deadlines through the day like send in your first post at noon and your next post at 2 30 and whatever, which uh, I was starting to get, I think, a little burned out at that pace.
1: I think it's understandable that you were getting burned out of at that pace. But I will also say that one of the things I remember being so struck by at the time was how good every post you did was. Uh,
0: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
1: and I'm not just – well, I mean it. You're welcome. But but I mean I'm not just saying that because uh, because we've worked together for a few years but uh, and because I like you a lot, but, but because I really like – I actually alluded to it once in in a piece for Slate, where I was talking about my own writing anxiety, uh, and and I was like so struck by how not not just how quickly you were able to produce, but how good what you were able to produce was. How, how long did it when you were just doing these sort of what we call aggregation blog posts, where you're you're sort of writing about and trying to add something to a story that's already in the news? How long did those usually take you?
0: Um, I think I would usually try to do. One piece, when I started out, I was mostly doing um, two posts a day, especially when I was getting, you know, used to writing a lot every day. I think I the first one would maybe take me um, four hours and the next one would take me, I would do a shorter one toward the end of the day that would take me like three hours. Um, and so that leaves room for editing um Mm -hmm. and like going to the bathroom and stuff yeah so that's that's
1: not just the writing time that's that's the whole experience of working on the piece
0: yeah so researching sometimes making a phone call or two uh, but mostly not when i was writing that much every day um Mm -hmm. and then when i would do three posts a day which i did for almost a year i guess like the middle year um it was yeah i would try to do them each in like two to three hours Mm. and it was exhilarating especially at first when i had never really written on this beat before i had always read about it you know read pieces on this beat um like i said i was really i followed it pretty religiously but um i i had to write about so many different kinds of things um fashion and women's health and uh Supreme Court cases and maternity leave and legislation. So I would I felt like I was having to become a subject area expert on multiple things a day, which was a lot of fun. I'd be like, all right, there's this, you know, um, a, a new recommendation from uh, whatever medical association that you only need to get uh, mammograms every, I can't think of it off the top of my head, every five years instead of three. Hmm. So I'd be like, okay, let me read a ton about mammograms, because I've never had one and never read anything about them before. So like, uh, what's the thinking on this? Like, what are the studies about this? Who is advocating for and against this? What do people think about it? And then because it's Slate, um, you know we try to offer a little bit more analysis and argument so I'd be like all right what do I think about this or like what what does the data say um, mm-hmm. and this is all within the three or four hours that I'm writing the post and so I felt like a little internet sleuth every day <laughs> especially when I was writing about something that or like child care um, yeah, something I have no experience in and knew very little about like I would feel like I was having revelations every day, like, Oh my God, how do parents do this? Like, it really is so expensive. And like, it's, there's hardly any childcare places. And so I'd get like really worked up about it. And then I'd write, I think a really, you know, uh, passionate post about it, about a thing that I had never really felt anything about, uh, before that
2: day. <laughs> Rules and restrictions may apply do you do
1: you think of i mean a, a question that I think is difficult for a lot of working journalists do you think of the time that you spend reading other journalists' work or doing this research do you th- Does that feel like work to you or does it only feel like work when you 're writing and revising and publishing
0: uh, sometimes i mean i that's a good question. I think it depends on what the topic is. Um, There are definitely certain things that I write about that I feel more passionate about and moved by than others. Um, So there are certain things that I write about that I don't necessarily find it interesting to read about in my free time. So it does feel like work. Um, Like, this is probably going to make me sound like a bad journalist, but like, uh, pay equity. Mm. Um, it's not something that I love reading about, you know, another piece about how women are getting paid crap in a given industry. It's something that I used to write about a lot, especially when I was writing three posts a day and there's always these new studies coming out or new, uh, legislation in the works in different States. Um, but I wouldn't seek that out in my free time. Except for the fact that I had to write about it. And so I wanted to keep up with what was going on um, in that field of thought. Um, but a lot of other things that I read about that are on my beat, I read about because I'm really interested. So, um, feminist critiques of pop culture, mm-hmm. um, you know, anything to do with uh, reproductive rights. And that's also something that um, before. I started this job, I felt like um, the, the reproductive rights and reproductive justice part of the job would be one of the parts that I would be least interested in. Like, okay, I can, you know, I like politics and policy. And so it'll be interesting on that front. But it's not something that I'm particularly and, you know, obviously, I'm, uh, you know, pro reproductive rights of and course. reproductive justice, but uh, I, I didn't feel like it was my issue, and yeah. part of that was the fact that we had another writer on staff um, or on contract at the time, Amanda Marcotte, um, who left Slate a couple months after I started um, to write for Salon. Mm-hmm. Um, but she—that was really her her beat, and she was very, um, you know, read up on it, an amazing writer on it. So I felt like that's her thing. And then when she left, it fell to me. And uh, pretty quickly, I got excited and passionate about it. And now it's something that I love writing about mm-hmm. um, and that I've loved reading about it. And I, I will seek out pieces that, um, that delve into theories of reproductive justice way more now than I did before the beat. I think part of it is the more you know about something – the easier it is to get into an in-depth piece about it because you have a base of knowledge. Yeah. Um, yeah, that makes sense. So that's part of what I try to do in my job is like, be make a piece about something like that interesting for somebody who may not already have a base of knowledge and hopefully interest them enough to want to read more about it.
1: For a lot of journalists, one of the other big time sucks these days is social media, especially Twitter, Um is that something that you get pulled into? Do you spend time checking the mentions and whatnot?
0: <laughs> uh, definitely not as much as I think some of my colleagues and contemporaries. I pretty quickly found out that if I read all of my mentions or or sought them out, you know, links to my articles, I would start doubting myself or beating up on myself um, because, you know, everyone's got an opinion on Twitter and sometimes those opinions are helpful and and valid and sometimes they're ad hominem and mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find it to be, I find Twitter to be um, a good news aggregator for me. I have lists that I use to bring in, thinkers and news outlets that are relevant to my beat um and in general keeping track of the news even not for my job but i don't find it particularly helpful to be keeping track of what people are saying about me on twitter
1: yeah i mean i also know we wrote a few things together uh, a while back and i know that that they were specific to issues of gender and masculinity in particular and uh while I still occasionally get hate tweets about the things that we wrote, <laughs> um, I also know that at the time and since much more of that outrage uh, from men is directed toward you. And uh, though I knew it wasn't easy to be a woman online, uh, it was really instructive in how bad it can be uh, to see that asymmetry of the hate, frankly, that that you received in some cases uh, versus uh, what, what I got hit with, um, which was – very, very asymmetrical.
0: Yeah, I don't think I actually knew that. I don't think I recognized that same asymmetry. But, um, yeah, it's it, it feels like now a lot of people, a lot of, you know, men's rights activists and alt-right people and, um, you know, anti-abortion people who tweet, uh, it feels like they're conscious of playing this role of— um, you know, I'm going to use hate speech or, or attack someone's looks um, or, you know, call them dumb and bad at their job and they should be ashamed of everything they've ever written, um, where I just, I have a hard time believing they actually feel that passionately about whatever I've written, but I think it's uh, it, it's a, a role that they enjoy playing on Twitter to be this thorn in everybody's side. Um, and the one thing that really upset me um was one time um Gavin McInnes the guy who founded Vice and also the Proud Boys the group of alt-right men who um don't masturbate and love fascism um he found he reads a piece that I wrote I can't even remember what it was I think it was about Andrew Puzder, the uh, labor secretary nominee, who ended up withdrawing himself from consideration. Um, And he was a fast food titan who had, you know, had his fast food. I think it was Hardee's had these really bad, like sexist commercials. I wrote a silly piece about them. Um, And Gavin McInnes went online, um, I think on Instagram and found a photo of me and my three bandmates. I was in a band at the time. And uh, two of whom are transgender. And he published this photo of me or tweeted it to his, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers. And basically said, like, look at the look at the woman who wrote this article and her friends. And like, what do you think of them? And then it was like hundreds of tweets about me and my friends who aren't journalists. And people were photoshopping things onto the photo, um, talking about my like parts of my body in explicit terms um and i just had it upset me and i made my social media accounts private for a while after that um and i also got great joy out of reporting every single one of those tweets i spent like hours reporting them to twitter Mm -hmm. um and that's also when i found out that it people have to really violate a few specific rules for twitter to do anything about it so just saying that they want to do a specific thing to a specific part of my body isn't enough they have to call me a dyke or they have to say they want to like kill me Hmm. it's um yeah that was and of course the guy who posted the original tweet um because he merely found the photo and allowed his followers to say things about it um didn't do anything wrong in twitter's estimation
1: yeah that's awful i'm so sorry christina does it feel worth it when you're dealing with stuff like that? The work that you do?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, especially people like that. Um, when it doesn't involve my friends, I feel like it's easy for me to let that stuff roll off my back. Mm-hmm. Like, these are people who I would never associate with in real life, who are never going to be my target audience for the stuff that I'm writing. Um, in fact, who are the people whose ideologies I'm trying to combat in the stuff that I'm writing. Mm-hmm. Um So I've found a lot of ways to deal with it. Like, I mute a lot of people. Um, I stopped getting push notifications for DMs on Twitter, which I leave my DMs open because I always want people to be able to contact me and I don't want to put my email address online. DMs for the listener
1: at home are direct messages, a way of communicating with someone privately (laughs) on the platform. Thanks,
0: Jacob. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I would literally wake up to a a DM that was like, you're ugly and have a bad haircut. (laughs) uh and yeah i feel like uh you know at a certain point this is probably cliche but like if if i'm riling those people up i'm probably doing a service with my journalism Mm. Mm -hmm. because that's what i want to do i want to be uh directly confronting these toxic ideologies Mm -hmm. um and and groups of anti-feminist fascists so yeah i think it's worth it and i know that Um, What I've experienced is um, a a really is not as bad as many of my other peers in the industry, because I just don't have that many Twitter followers because I don't tweet that much. And um, I I think, you know, I feel like I'm part of a, a siblinghood of of journalists who get Hate tweets and the fact that I know that it happens to everyone makes it feel a little less bad when it's happening to me.
1: Yeah. Well, it seems like you've found ways to draw boundaries there. I wonder about work more generally, though, uh, and this is not about harassment or anything, but just about doing your job. Um, you start around seven thirty in the morning. You said, when do you close off for the day, or do you close off for the day? Do you? Slate so uses Slack, this this chat service that you mentioned earlier. Um, pretty heavily uh sometimes it's still going at 10 30 at night people are still arguing or or shooting ideas (laughs) off of each other um do you try to shut that stuff down at some point or or do you generally find that you're still involved with work still thinking about work uh late into the evening
0: um i definitely you know leave the office stop checking my email stop writing um Usually around six or six thirty, um, but because of the nature of my job and my beat, I am thinking about it a lot of the time. But it doesn't feel like work. It feels I get excited when I'm not at work and I have a good idea for a story, or I talk to somebody and I think, and you know, they're telling me about their friend who something happened to, and I'm like, oh my god, put me in touch with that person. That sounds like a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that, and I love that. Um, my beat is expansive enough to include a lot of things that, um, interest me outside of the working day. Um, Slack is funny. I feel like Slack is a way bigger time suck for me than Twitter because I'm way more interested in what my colleagues are saying than what random people on Twitter are saying.
1: (laughs) We do have some very smart colleagues.
0: Yeah, we do. And um there are a lot of good debates that happen on Slack. Um a lot of times those debates will inform pieces that run on slate. Sometimes they don't, and they're just um people trying to understand the world in the news. Um so sometimes at night when I'm, you know, doing my last Facebook check before bed, I'll like look at Slack to see A, if anything in the news happened, because I don't get push alerts. Um, for the news, which is another part of my drawing (laughs) boundaries in the Trump era. Um, And sometimes I'll chime in. Um, It's a good way to feel connected to colleagues, especially who are in New York or spread out around the country, um, because we do have people. I think only about a third of the editorial team is in D.C., so there are a lot of people I don't get to see on a daily basis. Um, But I definitely have a love-hate relationship with Slack, because when I'm trying to focus on writing – and there's a really interesting conversation happening on Slack. It's hard to pull myself away.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you were you were hired um, to blog under the double X vertical, under this kind of women's and gender issues broadly construed vertical. Um, and it, you do primarily cover those issues still today, um, especially as you've been saying uh, harassment and, and reproductive rights and things like this. Um, but you've done some writing here as well, still about lgbtq issues and about your own experiences one piece of yours that has stuck with me for a long time is something you wrote about the side shave haircut um, this this haircut that uh, as you wrote was once the a haircut you once had yeah um, yeah <laughs> th- that was a sort of lesbian signifier um and that got kind of appropriated i guess we could say by uh by heterosexual women Um, do you try to find time to write about LGBTQ issues ever or or does it just sort of come up in the course of of your your working life now and then?
0: Yeah, it's not a a conscious thing. Um, You know, I'm not thinking, oh, I I would like to write two pieces about LGBTQ stuff this week. But um, I try to think of it as part of my beat um, because it is about gender and about women mm-hmm. um, but uh, yeah, sometimes it's it's hard because we do have um, a designated section for LGBTQ pieces and uh, it has you know its own editor. Um, and I think I have had to advocate a little bit more to write about that stuff um, just because uh, it's not really an explicit part of my beat, even though I might think it is. It, that it makes a lot of sense. Um, but that's another th- area where it's, um, you know, th- those are issues I think about a lot. And I find it especially rewarding when I get to write about them because I think that there's a, a dearth of um, smart LGBTQ writing on the internet. I think there are a lot of sites that have. Uh, really great LGBTQ writers and editors, but few of them are able to make specific um, designated space for queer argument and content. Um, and and that's not to you know besmirch any of my colleagues doing fantastic work out there, but uh, it's you know historically been hard for um, you know publications to make the case for lgbtq specific sections in part because of you know homophobia Mm -hmm. and part because uh especially for content related to women um or uh genderqueer and non-binary people um it's uh, there's a sense that it doesn't sell and that advertisers won't want their products running next to that content or that you know women um don't you know queer women um don't have the money to spend on products or they don't go out or they don't do this or that and so why would advertisers want to advertise to them
1: mm. do those i mean those assumptions seem like they point to the necessity of this kind of work though uh to some extent right um in that it suggests that there are these complex intersecting forces of uh socioeconomic uh, conditions and racial ones and so on that are also inflecting who counts as a valuable voice um, or valuable subject in the public. Totally.
0: Yeah. Uh And I think uh, it I I've loved writing about this stuff at Slate because it is um, a a mainstream site that has a really an audience that's diverse in terms of gender and sexuality. Um, and so it's not. I'm not just preaching to the choir, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I I love the idea that like a straight cisgender man might read my piece about the side shave, and his mind would be totally blown. Mine was. Um, even though, <laughs> oh good, uh, you know. And I, and at the same time, I think that the piece that that piece or the piece that I wrote about um, trying to parse the terms queer versus lesbian. I think that those can be really validating and affirming and thought-provoking for queer people, too, who don't get the chance to read that stuff explored in a dedicated space by uh, a, a journalist who writes about that stuff a lot, um, and also to the people who have never really thought about that stuff before.
1: Yeah. I mean, y- you mentioned that, that you have to sort of advocate f- for your writing on these issues a little more. I mean, does that mean that the pitching process is different for you, that the way you reach out to editors or, or develop a piece is different than it is for the, the stuff you write under double X every day.
0: Yeah. Uh, especially because our, like I said, we have a, um, we have a dedicated blog outward for LGBTQ content, which has its own editor, um, Brian louder, who's currently on book leave. So sad for us. He'll um, be back soon, though. I think, yes, yes. I'm very excited. I think in the new year he's coming back. Um, but, uh, so, you know, I don't ever want to be stepping on his toes or poaching his ideas. Um, but especially back in the days when I had a more intense quota, I would want my stuff to run on double X. So it counted for double X's engaged viewership time and page views <laughs> and all of the metrics by which we, you know, measure our success. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, this is nothing against the editors at slate who are incredibly smart and encouraging, but, um, I think it, it takes a little bit more explanation sometimes to uh, convince a straight editor that this is a very important thing that I should write about. Mm. That's sometimes. I think other times it might be harder to convince a queer editor that it's a story, whereas a straight editor might be like, oh my God, yes, Like I've never thought about that. That's a fantastic piece. Please write about that. And I think uh, most editors at Slate Love the idea of having a diversity of perspectives on the site, especially um, ones that are underrepresented, and queer perspectives definitely fall into that category.
1: Speaking of diverse perspectives, I mean, you're someone with, I think, a pretty rich um, personal community um, of people who are thinking richly about a variety of topics in a variety of ways. Do you think of yourself as someone who's, you know, given that you have this position, this voice here at Slate, this, you know, national publication, um, maybe international, um, do you ever try to bring in the the voices of, of people in your own community, in your own circle, uh, a, and help them uh, uh, find a, wa- a larger audience as well?
0: Um, I'm not an editor, so I can't assign things, sure. but I have definitely recommended to my editors, writers who um, I, I know personally who I think are doing great work um, on issues of gender and sexuality and race. Um, one is uh, Miriam Perez at Color Lines, who's a dear friend of mine. Um, I try to link to their work when I can, um, and it's not hard to find occasions to, because like I said, they're incredibly smart and doing fantastic work um i also for my friends who aren't writers um i've definitely interviewed them for pieces when especially when i write like a silly kind of piece that i'm just trying to compile a lot of anecdotes like i did one piece about um netflix and hulu and hbo go passwords and what do you (laughs) do when you are using your significant other's password and then you break up um and I think a lot of the pieces that I write like that are default have like a ton of queer representation in them, like Mm -hmm. maybe disproportionate, just because my my circles and my circles circles uh, are heavily queer. And so I feel like I'm correcting the anti-queer bias in media by having like, oh, wow, this piece is just happens to be almost entirely lesbians. Yeah, Uh,
1: it seems like this is important in part because Finding queer voices or, or diverse voices generally, whatever that might mean, isn't just about who writes uh, the stories, though that's hugely important, um, but also who they speak to. Um, and it sounds like you're speaking to a lot of different uh, folks who don't often get represented. Uh,
0: yeah, totally. And with pieces like uh, pieces about dating, um, I wrote a piece um, when OKCupid okay decided to kick out a well-known white supremacist um, kick him off the site. I wrote a piece about how, you know, white supremacists and racists are everywhere on the site. And just because their names aren't known doesn't mean that they're any less racist and white supremacist. Mm. Um, and so I interviewed a, a bunch of folks who have, you know, endured ha- hate speech and racist language and insults on the site. Um, and that's another you know, pieces like that, I think, in mainstream publications can sort of default skew straight. Um, but just based on who I know and who my contacts know, uh, mine tend to skew the opposite direction. Yeah. Has,
1: has the Trump presidency changed the way you think about your work and the kind of journalism you're doing?
0: A little bit. I think at first, after he got elected, um, and I had been covering him point by point on misogyny and feminism, as I had been the Clinton candidacy and the Sanders candidacy, um, when he won, I felt a little bit of a drop in my sense of purpose. like I had worked so hard to expose all of the ways in which he was bad for women and queer people and and everyone. Uh, and he won. And not that I thought that my writing was going to sway the election or anything, but before the election, it really felt like we had a, a sense of purpose. Um, and I felt a similar sense of purpose in in uh, writing critical pieces about Clinton and Sanders. But obviously, Trump was a special case. Um, but then, you know, we had a lot of talks about this at Slate about what our our role could be in the Trump presidency. Um And I think we all felt like it was more important than ever to focus attention on the marginalized communities who Trump was affecting Mm. in dire and life-threatening and livelihood-threatening ways. And that's something that impacts me as a woman and a queer person and has brought a little bit of a sense of purpose back to my work where I think... Just writing openly about the issues that matter to me and my communities and the people that I love is a little bit of a a subversive act that, you know, the the Proud Boys guy can insult me and my friends all he wants, but I'm still writing. My friends are still making art and music and protesting. Uh, And as long as there's Slate and a free and open internet, those voices... Will continue to be heard.
1: Well, thank you so much for talking with us, Christina.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. Uh, This week, we want to recommend Hit Parade. On Hit Parade, Chris Malamphy takes you on a fascinating journey through pop chart history. Whether it's the week the Beatles swept the entire top five on the Billboard charts, or The Unlikely reign of MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This, a song I recently re-listened to and I'm kind of obsessed with right now. Uh, Hit Parade explores the people and the politics behind the songs you hear on the radio. Uh, Here at Working, we also love to hear from you by email. You can write to us via working at Slate.com. You can also hit me up on Twitter uh, or or wherever else you might find me. Uh, You can listen to past episodes at slate.com slash working. This episode was produced and edited by Benjamin Frisch.